live in a world that's just starving for love. Bradley Ray Wilcox. Very brief bio here. First counselor in the young man. General presidency. Of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Associate professor in the Department of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University. I think University. we better go back to the original topic. Mother Teresa would often say there's an epidemic of needing love and not being able to find that. What do you do with a kid that's wetting himself in sixth grade because he's so terrified that his father might come back into his life? Hmm. I've never seen a curriculum guide that tells you how to handle that one. We don't focus enough on the other needs, the need for validation, for acceptance. I think real teachers are the ones who see needs and then are able to meet those needs. And that's when you feel like you're making a difference. When I meet the Savior, I don't want to give him a handshake. I don't want a nice little pat on the back. When I meet the Savior, I'm weak. He is strong. But when I'm with him, we are strong. Because he's full of grace, then he's willing to take us, meet us where we are, and help us reach our potential. In this area, where do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions? I think they're missing. You say, let's get real. I just don't quite know how to do anything else but be real. I don't have any memories before Ethiopia. Really? Uh, so we were over there in the mid-60s, and my earliest childhood memories are all of Africa. And so actually, uh, I had quite a transition moving from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh. back to the United States. Uh, my mom says, I don't remember this, but I came home, I was baptized here, so I, I must have gotten home when I was, just before I turned eight. Okay. And um, my mom says that I came home from school and was crying, and she said, what's wrong? And I said, mom, everybody's white. <laughs> You're like, what is this? Uh, it was such a different world for me. My earliest church memories are sitting on what they call little jima stools, little wooden carved stools. And uh, I, I would sit there with the other children and we'd just be in somebody's house. And then we'd go in somebody's bedroom and have a little primary class. And mm. I mean, you know, it was it was all such a small thing, but I I just have such wonderful memories of singing, worshiping together in that setting. Mm. Um, and I also have memories of serving. Mm. Um, I remember not many children recognize the value of fast offerings mm. because they don't see where that goes. So I think you have to be an adult in our culture here to start understanding the needs. But in Africa, the needs were so obvious that, that you know, e even as a child, I wanted to help. And, and my dad mm. was able to teach us that, you know, as we, as we put our efforts together in an organized way with the other mm. members of the church, then we were able to reach out. And I remember going down and taking um, animals that could be used as food to uh, an orphanage, going down and taking some school materials to a, a man who was doing school with some of these street children in Addis Ababa mm. who had come from the rural areas because they didn't have any way to make a living. So they were trying to, you know, everybody was a shoeshine boy. Mm. And 
and we were going down. And so even as a child, I was involved very in a very hands-on way with helping and seeing what can be done. There was a doctor there who was running a little clinic for teenage girls who were pregnant so that they could get nutrition and he could help them through their pregnancy and, and they could have a, a birth experience. But some of these girls were as young as 12. Whoa. And so I 12. remember going to and seeing these young girls and and going in and having my dad and some of the other brothers from our little branch, you know, helping him. And, um, and so it was, it was just really interesting because, you know, you, you, most kids don't have those kind of memories. I, when I came back to the and United this is States before eight, this is really, yeah. Interesting. I mean, when I came back to the United States and, and got in school, I would hear kids complain about school lunch. And I was like, Huh. who would ever complain about school lunch? I mean, yeah. this is awesome. And oh. I just kept thinking of what that would mean to the children in, mm. in Ethiopia if they had school lunch. Um, mm. Everybody would complain about reading, you know, oh, I hate reading, I hate school. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, I just came from a place where school is an absolute privilege and where learning to read is so rare. And so I think I came back from that experience and it shaped my life in ways that, that even now I probably still don't completely understand. Uh, I love reading. I love books. I love education. I became a school teacher. I mean, hmm. these are things that I think mattered to me because at a young age, I saw the difference wow. that that made. Up next. I don't think any other people have ever taught that in a primary lesson. <laughs> Again, I think the most exciting thing is just to think. Any fond memories of Ethiopia that oh, come to mind? Just so many. I I learned words. I didn't never learn the language. It's Amharic. And, and I'm so thrilled now that missionaries are learning the language and that there's a, a mission in Ethiopia. I was able to go back uh, on a training assignment and it was very emotional for me mm. to now be able to see a chapel there in Addis Ababa and a chapel in another city that's close by and to see members of the church and missionaries from Ethiopia. We were there before 1978. And uh, so mm. the church wasn't established. And I just remember how thrilled we were as a family in 1978 when the revelation was announced by President Kimball. And my mom knew, mm. my dad knew, I knew what that meant for Ethiopia. Wow. And we were just so thrilled. And then as, as the work started to progress there, I remember my mom would read in the church news about the first group of Ethiopians who went to the temple. And she would just cry and cry. And she would read about the first Ethiopian missionaries and she would cry. Um, and then what did I do? I went to Ethiopia and cried. <laughs> I stood up in front of those missionaries and just bawled my eyes so out. So when was this? Uh, it was last year. Okay, so, so to detail that for me, you're, you're walking in, 
in your in Ethiopia, and this is the first time since you were before you since you were around seven. Is this the first time? Yeah. So just detail that for me when you you're walking in for the first time in years into this chapel into this training. Tell me tell me more about that. Oh, it was just it was just amazing because so many things came back. Um, you know, some of the words that I had learned, I uh, tenasteling, wusha. Uh, Wat and injera, the food that they have kind of a sponge bread with kind of a stew and the smells, the, the flavors, the, mm. I mean, there were all these things that just the minute I got there is just this flood of memories. And, uh, the, the church leaders were so patient because I wanted to go and try to find the house we lived in. Mm. And we found the neighborhood, but I think the house has actually been torn down and there's a high-rise apartment building there now. But but I went back to the school and the classroom I was in was actually torn down, oh. but the school was still there. And, um, and uh, they uh, the the guy took me the the assistant principal or whoever was showing me around the school took me to the library and pulled out an old uh, yearbook and I found a picture of me when what? I was there in second grade and a picture of my brother who was in kindergarten and a picture of my other brothers I mean it was it was just so fun to kind of go back and to relive all those memories again but. Again, I think the most exciting thing is just to think now that uh, that the church is there, it's established, it's growing, and uh, and it's just so thrilling to think now that that these people I love will now be able to enjoy the fullness of the gospel. It's that's amazing. Uh, yeah. That's amazing. Any friends? Did really you have, exciting. Do you, do you have any friends that you remember? None maybe? that I connect, you know, none that yeah. I found when yeah. I went back because yeah. a lot of my friends were just kids that played in the streets uh, outside of our home. Um, there were friends in our little branch that I played with as well. And the, the Ethiopian children coming up and I had some little matchbox cars and we would run our little cars. You know, I would give them some cars and we would run our little cars along the fence and I couldn't speak their language. They couldn't speak my language. But uh, isn't that something that we learn is mm. that language is not essential mm. to communication. That's such a powerful thing to say. What, tell me what you mean by that. Well, I just think, you know, there I was yeah. having friends that we couldn't communicate, we couldn't Word, talk, yeah. but we could play with our cars and we could play with our, my little, you know, I, I had some little plastic animals and things and we'd play with that. And, yeah. and it was, it was, uh, it's, it was just fun to look back and realize that, you know, you can make connections with people and those connections don't necessarily require spoken language but it just requires us to be able to be willing to become friends to be willing to learn uh and to be willing to try to understand where someone else is coming from wow. and i think that's what bonds us yeah it is and when you you know when you when you're in the gospel you find that i mean stephen you've been to a chapel where they're speaking another language yeah 
And yet it's just like your church at home. Is it I mean, you're just sitting yeah. there going, oh my gosh, the babies are crying, the high priests are sleeping. <laughs> I mean, it's the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I love, um, I think it was Elder Jackson. He talked about the culture of Christ. It's, yes. it's, it's, and even Elder Christofferson's talk recently on, it's, it's Christ that unites us. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I feel like those attributes are what unite us. Yeah, and so, Ethiopia is a very Christian country. They're a yeah. Coptic Christian country. Hmm. So when people think of North and Eastern Africa, often there's a lot of countries that have a large Muslim population. But Ethiopia has traditionally had a strong Christian base. Hmm. It's, uh, it's a little different brand of Christianity, mm -hmm. the Coptic, the Egyptian Christian. Interesting. But... Uh, but, oh, I just, I remember the woman who would come and, and help in our house had a cross tattooed in her forehead. Wow. And I said to my mom, why does she have that cross? And my mom said, because she's a Christian. And I said, then I want a cross on my forehead. <laughs> and she told me, Brad, you know, it's being a Christian isn't about what you have tattooed on your forehead or even hmm. a cross that you wear around your neck. She said, being a Christian is what's inside. It's not what's outside. That's what defines you as a Christian. And hmm. these are the little lessons that, you know, I don't know that that's what moms taught other moms taught their children, but in the environment we were in, those are lessons that I, I remember. I remember going to parade. Haile Selassie was the emperor at the time, and he was truly the emperor of Ethiopia. I mean, he was mm. all-powerful. And it was really interesting because we were at a little parade, and his Rolls Royce passed by, and everybody was screaming, um, the Lion of Judah, the Lion of Judah, the mm. Lion of Judah. And I remember my mom looking at my little brother and me and saying, he is not the Lion of Judah. Jesus <laughs> is the Lion of Judah. Now, I've never, I don't think any other people have ever taught that in a primary lesson, you know? Yeah. That, that this emperor is not the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah is Jesus. And so these were lessons I was learning that were very unique because of the unique situation that we were in. What a cool situation. So you, your earliest, fondest memories are in Ethiopia until the age of around seven, yeah. where you grew up. I'm curious to know more about the impact that it's had on you. You said that you're now a teacher. What was, how did that come to be that you decided to do that? Up next, we took an aptitude test and it said I should be a priest or a rabbi. Well, both my parents were teachers, um, and you know, so I, I I grew up seeing the difference that they made. But then I came back to the United States, and um, you know, my mom was teaching second grade, my dad was teaching at BYU in education, and so it was just kind of interesting because my brothers and I would go down to her classroom, and we'd help her put up bulletin boards and. We'd help her get her classroom ready at the beginning of the year. And she always had us down there in her classroom helping to tutor the kids or read with the kids. And so uh, I, I think I was the only fourth grader in the universe who had a bulletin board file. I mean, I had a <laughs> file of bulletin board ideas. And when the teachers at my school found out that I knew how to do bulletin boards, 
Then they drafted me. Really? Had me in during lunch recess, helping them with their bulletin board. Really? So, so then later, you know, as I grew up, I remember in high school, I, we took an aptitude test and, and it, uh, said I should be a priest or a rabbi. And that's not good news for a little kid growing up so in the like, church what? of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you're like, no way. So I went on a mission instead, yeah. went to Chile on my mission. And when I came back, I was at BYU and I was changing my major about every week. I mean, I don't know whether I changed it on paper every week, but mentally I was changing every week. I One minute I was thinking journalism, the next minute I was thinking history, the next minute I was thinking music the next minute. I mean, I just loved everything. Mm. And uh, so my dad said, you ought to take one of those career exploration classes. Hmm. I said, dad, those are for the people who don't know what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, yeah, you ought to take one of those career exploration <laughs> classes. So I took the class and they said we were going to do an aptitude test. And I said, I already know what it's going to say. It's going to say I should be a priest or a rabbi. And they said, this is BYU. We took that one off. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, what did it say? And so I said, well, what's next on the list? And so when I took the test, it said I should be an elementary school teacher. Hmm. And I thought, why did it say that? Why did it say that? And then I thought, oh, why not? You know, I already Mm. have the bulletin board file. (laughs) I got a good head start. And I went into elementary ed and I loved it because it did give me the variety I needed. Oh my gosh. I mean, I was teaching everything. I was teaching, Mm. one minute I'm teaching reading, the next minute I'm teaching music, the next minute I'm teaching social studies, the next minute I'm teaching maturation. (laughs) I mean, you and I have even worked together teaching maturation. courses. And, um, and so I loved the variety and I loved the kids. It was always so fun. I've loved working with kids and youth throughout my entire life because they're just so spontaneous. Yeah, You know, you can speak to a group of adults and they'll sit there nodding their heads and their minds are completely somewhere else, but kids and youth are so transparent. That's right. And so real. Let's get real. That's right. They are so real. Uh, and uh, and they, they always just made me laugh so much. One kid said he got up to give his report on Abraham Lincoln, and he was so scared. And he said, Abraham Lincoln was born in a log cabin he built with his own hands. And then uh, <laughs> I just started busting out laughing. And the funny thing wasn't just what he had said. It's that none of the kids got it. <laughs> so they're like, what, Mr. Wilcox, why are you laughing? What? What's so funny? <laughs> I'm just like, he was born in a cabin. He built with his own hands. Uh, you know, it was it was just always fun to to be able to just see them um just the the way they encounter the world, <laughs> the way they try to understand the world, and and just the funny things that would happen. I I always loved that, and so I loved the kids. I loved what I was teaching. I loved the variety, and I loved to that that uh, I could make decisions. Mm. You know, I, I didn't want to. Ah, yeah. I didn't want a job where you know. I just did the same thing over and over every day. Yeah. I wanted to be able to um, be a professional. I wanted to be able to match my 
uh, knowledge base mm. to the needs mm. and be able to meet the needs. Mm. And that's what professionals do. Yeah. Uh, you go to a doctor because he has a knowledge base or she has a knowledge base mm. that then she is able to apply mm. in your situation to help you fill a need. And then if that doesn't work, then she'll reflect and mm, say, hmm, mm. why didn't that work? All right, let's try something else. And yeah. here's what we can try now. And I loved that situation with kids. Many people today think teachers are middle managers. Yeah. Um, uh, that somebody else makes the decisions and then they are the ones that implement those decisions. Yeah. And I just think that's so far from the truth because, you know, they can... They can write all the curriculum guides that they want, but when that door closes, yeah. you're the one that sees needs, and you're the one that needs to be able to meet those needs in an effective way, and you're the one that needs to know what happens next. Mm. So, I mean, our culture kind of sees teachers as... Well, I love the Bart Simpson yeah, episode where he steals the teacher's manuals <laughs> and they have to close the school. <laughs> yeah. I think today, if we took away somebody's PowerPoint, yeah. they wouldn't quite know what to say. Interesting. And, yeah. uh, and I think that real teachers are the ones who aren't dependent on the manual or the PowerPoint. Those are good tools. But I think real teachers are the ones who see needs and then are able to meet those needs. And that's when you feel like you're making a difference. That's right. That's when you know that you are, uh, you know, really making a difference. Uh, I know right now in education, everybody's all excited about test scores and we've got to test the kids on this and test the kids on that and test the kids on the other. And somehow we think that if we just keep putting the thermometer in the kid's mouth, mm -hmm. it's going to change. Yeah. The and I think we've got to realize that the tests aren't what teach and that teachers are the ones that can make the difference that hopefully will show up on tests, but sometimes it doesn't show up on tests. I mean, what do you do? with a kid that's wetting himself mm. in sixth grade mm. because he's so terrified that his father might come back into his life. Mm. Hmm. I've never seen a curriculum guide that tells you how to handle that one. Yeah. See, those are the situations that teachers deal with. I visited a classroom on the west side of Salt Lake and I was doing some demonstrations for the teachers and after the demonstration, I said to the teacher, I said, oh, you've got the cutest kids in the whole universe in your class. She says, mm -hmm. I don't have one child mm -hmm. that I started the year with. And it was October. Up next, Mother Teresa would often say, if you love, you open yourself up to hurt. If you love, you open yourself up to pain. But what made the change? Just kids that are moving, moving into an apartment oh my god because there's no down payment necessary oh. and then they get kicked out of the apartment oh. and then they move schools and kids who mm. i mean just the situations that people live with this these days mm. but it was so eye-opening 
to realize that there are often so many needs. Mm. I grew up in a family that was very demonstrative. My mom and dad, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles. I mean, everybody was always hugging. But it was kind of our family thing. Yeah. And then I served my mission in Chile and realized that, no, that's how yeah, people that's, live. That's right. I mean, I would go into the priesthood meeting a little late in my home ward and they'd stop the meeting and made sure I went around and hugged everybody. And <laughs> some of those older brethren, they, they'd still give you a kiss on both cheeks. Yeah. And, and I think I re realized there that, that we don't focus enough on the other needs. Yeah. The need for love, the need for validation, the need for acceptance. That's mm. so real. I mean, when I meet the Savior, I don't want to give him a handshake. And when I meet the Savior, I don't want a nice little pat on the back. When I meet the Savior, I want an embrace. And I know we need to be appropriate, but we also live in a world that's just starving, starving for that kind of love. Mother Teresa would often say, there are lots of problems in India where she was working, a lot of sicknesses that she was dealing with and helping people. In the West, there's an epidemic of loneliness, mm. an epidemic of isolation, an epidemic of needing love and not being able to find that. Wow. And so she said, if you love, you open yourself up to hurt. Mm. If you love, you open yourself up to pain. But she said, love anyway. So I do, I do. I remember meeting President Kimball I was in a play called My Turn on Earth. I don't know if you're, you, you're not even old enough to remember <laughs> I that. Don't, I don't. I played the part of Satan. <laughs> <laughs> the cast is small. There were only five in the cast, but we were doing some shows up in Salt Lake and got a notice that President Kimball was going to come with some members of his family to see the play. Everybody was all excited about that. I was excited that I'd have the chance to meet him. And, um, and I was teaching Sunday school at the time. Okay. And the 12-year-olds. And so I said, what would you say if you had the chance to meet President Kimball face-to-face? -face? One kid said, I'd ask him if he knows how to water ski because we have a <laughs> boat at Lake Powell and I would love to have him come water skiing. Another kid said, I'd ask him if they have to wear makeup during general conference. I mean, all these crazy questions. And this little girl said, well, if I met President Kimball, I'd just tell him I love him. Mm. So the next night I had the chance and they took us from the stage. There we were in our costumes. There we were having performed for the whole evening. I mean, I was sweaty and, you know, <laughs> I was, that we, they took us down. We were in our makeup and everything. And they took us down to meet President Kimball before he got in his car. And uh, the, the director was escorting President Kimball. He had President Kimball by the arm and he was introducing him to us. And when he got to me, 
he said, this is Elder Wilcox, because I had just put in my mission papers. Oh, wow. And he said, oh, Elder Wilcox, where are you going on your mission? I said, I don't know. I thought you knew. <laughs> and he laughed. And, he, and the director was looking at me like, Brad, this is not the time for your crazy humor. And he says, well, so what are you doing in the church right now? And I said, well, I teach the 12-year-olds in Sunday school. And he said, there's no more important calling. You know, his yeah, little yeah. voice. There's no yeah, more important yeah. calling in the church. Yeah. And uh, he says, what did you teach them yesterday? <laughs> and I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember what the lesson was on. I just remembered that I'd ask them what they would say if they yeah, met him. Yeah. So I said, well, President Kimball, I asked them what they would say if they met you. Mm. And he says, and what did they tell you? <laughs> and then did you tell them all of it? And I didn't. I uh, just said, President Kimball, they told me that they would tell you that they love you. Mm. I love you. And he held me. Mm. He didn't hug me. He held me. Mm. And I'll just never forget just being held in his arms. Mm. I think that was one of the experiences that helped me find one of my missions in life. It's to love. And it's to try to let people feel the Savior's love by saying, I love you, when they live in a world where their fathers and so many people that should say those words just don't. Wow. But it's one of the, one of the reasons I was born. And it was President Kimball mm. who taught me that. I've known this element about you, of this love, but just to get the details and the depth of this experience that you've had with, with President Kimball, he teaches you this very divine lesson. Fast forward to, to today. You're now a teacher. You're also a member of the General Young Men's Presidency, the first counselor. You're now meeting with the prophet on a regular basis, and you're also teaching at the same time, still, in your profession, it's got to be challenging to balance. Up next, you get to a point where the only thing you can do is juggle. The way that I have learned to play this game, I work full-time and I have a full-time calling. It's explained for general officers like uh, Area 70s. Yeah, okay. It kind of forces you to juggle. It's a little different than Area 70s because much of their work is on weekends. Mm. And so it leaves them a free during the week. Um, for general officers, it's a lot of work during the week and on weekends wow. along with, with a, a job. But I'm kind of grateful that people can look at general officers, Area 70s, and they can say, these are people who are juggling, yeah, just like I'm juggling. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. we look yeah. at full-time general authorities and we don't always relate to that world. 
because it's kind of like full-time missionaries. Kids go on a full-time mission and they have time to be able to study and time to serve and time to focus on the Lord's work. And then they come home from missions and they're like, whoa. Yeah, it's hard to uh, Suddenly I have a to balance a social life with my calling, with my family, with my school, with my work. And suddenly they're juggling. And Tony DePaula did a little picture book that I love. It's called The Clown of God. And it's a retelling <laughs> oh, yeah, of, yeah. A, 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 of a folktale, an oral tradition tale that that is from Europe. And he, in his retelling, he sets the story in Italy. And it's about a little beggar boy, and he can juggle. Mm -hmm. And so he'll juggle at the market, he'll juggle fruit, and and then the, the people will give him food to eat. Well, he grows up and he, he sees some traveling players come through and they're doing their little show. And he says to the maestro, you know, he says to the, the director, I can juggle. <laughs> so he juggles for the director and the director says, hmm, not bad. All right, you can come and you can, you can work with us, but no money, just food. <laughs> and so the little kid joins this troop of traveling players and they go around Italy and he juggles and he juggles and he juggles. And then he gets old. Mm. and nobody wants to see him juggle anymore. And he starts dropping some of the mm. things and kind of says, no, uh, I'll, it's time for me to go home. So he mm. goes home to where he grew up as a child. And when he gets there, it's late and there's a storm blowing. So he goes inside of the church and he claps, collapses in a heap in the corner and he falls asleep. But then he's awakened to what's called the procession of the gifts. It's Christmas time. The church is full of people bringing gifts to lay before the statue of the baby Jesus in his mother's arms. And he says, what is all this? <laughs> and this lady says, you know, quiet, be quiet. This is the procession of the gifts. He looks up at the statue and he says, but the child looks so sad, even with all these gifts. And so after all the people are gone, he says, I used to make children smile. Mm. And he decides he'll juggle. He pulls out his bag and he pulls out his sticks and clubs and torches and balls and all the things that he's going to juggle. And he puts on a show mm. in an empty church hmm. for the baby Jesus. And he says, for you, sweet child, for you. And he juggles. And then in the story, he drops dead. And the priest comes in and says, oh my goodness, the, the old clown is dead. Then another priest looks up at the statue of the baby and he sees that the baby is smiling. And in his hand, he holds one of the balls. Well, it's a, it's a folk tale, but I love it because I think that's what I have to do. Mm. When I feel like I'm just not as good a father as I should be, mm. I'm not as good. A, I'm not. Yes, yeah. Stephen, father of five children. I can feel this. I'm not as good a husband as I should be. I'm not doing my calling as well as I should. I'm not doing my job as well as I should. I just remember that little story 
and I remember, hmm. I just got to remember who I'm juggling for. <sighs> you know, who am I doing this for? Wow. When you're a teacher, you're not doing it for the money. No. And when you are a teacher, you think maybe you're doing it to help the kids or to help the parents. And then some mm -hmm. kid calls you names and swears at you because you actually ask him to turn in his homework. And then some parent gets mad because you actually ask the kid to turn in his homework. I mean, yeah. pretty soon you start realizing that you're not always doing it for them. That's right. So who are you doing it for? And if you can remember you're doing it for God, then God has always been good enough to me that he tells me which balls I need to juggle. See, we live in a world, Stephen, where people say, place your priorities. Yeah. But have yeah, you noticed yeah. that every time somebody says, place your priorities, that person wants to be your priority? That's right. If the bishop says, That's place right. your priorities, right. he's saying the ministering needs to improve. That's right. If, the, if your wife says, place your priorities, it she, means she needs some time. Mm. If your boss says, place your priorities, it means you gotta get in here a little earlier. Uh, I mean, everybody who says place your priorities, and we live in a culture that actually tells us what our priorities are supposed to be. God, family, then work, Boy. then, you know. Mm. But then we feel so guilty mm. because God and family are our priorities, but where do we spend our time? See, we don't always spend our time living our priorities. Instead, we're spending our time trying to work, trying to put food on the table, trying to get the yard mowed. <laughs> You're just telling my life right now. <laughs> I know. And then we feel guilty because we say, wait, God's my priority. Mm. And yet, I forgot to pray this morning. Yeah. I was so in such a hurry to get out the door, I forgot to pray. God's my priority. Yeah, but, you know, I showed up at the Come Follow Me lesson at church, and I didn't even look at anything during the week. I mean, then we feel bad. Mm. And instead, the way that I have learned to play this game, this juggling, is... I keep one ball in the air, and that's my relationship with God. Mm. That's my relationship with Christ. I keep that covenant relationship as a priority. And then somehow he's always been good to tell me what needs to come second, what needs to come third, what needs to come fourth, and it changes. It changes from day to day. It changes based on what's going on. I mean, sometimes I have to say, Bishop, I can't come to that meeting because I need to go to my son's game. Sometimes I have to say, son, I can't come to your game because I have a meeting with the bishop. Yeah. Sometimes it's, I'm sorry, BYU, I have an assignment from the church to go to Ethiopia. Mm. So my students are going to have to watch some videos mm. while I'm gone yeah. of my lectures because I can't be there in person. And other times I have to say to the church, I can't take that assignment because I need to be teaching my classes. 
people talk about balance. Yeah. And again, I think balance is not a fair representation of how we live our lives because who lives with balance? Wow. I mean, you can't balance your family and your work and your calling and all of these things at the same time, just like you're you, a balanced diet. Yeah. Oh, yes. I can probably pull off a balanced meal, <laughs> but a balanced diet? <laughs> <laughs> there is no way I can pull that off because sometimes I'm eating late at night and yeah, early in the yeah. morning. Sometimes I'm not eating at mm. all and sometimes I'm overeating. Yeah. And it's just, it's too hard for me to think about balance hmm. as if I can seriously balance all these things. Instead, I have to just think of juggling hmm. and I have to just say, all right, I... This ball needs to be in the air right now. And this ball needs to be in the air right now, but these can wait. Yeah. Don't talk to me about family <laughs> history right now. And don't talk to me about indexing right now. Yeah. Because that's a ball that's having to sit on the sidelines. And if I know that I'm good with God, mm. and I know that he is telling me what needs to come next, then my life isn't pretty. Mm. It gets pretty ugly sometimes, but I don't have to feel guilty. Yeah. I don't feel guilty for not doing this or not doing that. When do I do my scripture study? Often it's in the shower. I go through some memorized scriptures and in the shower. Yeah. When do I pray? Sometimes it's in the car, but I don't have to feel bad about that because I'm juggling. Yeah. I'm juggling. Then I have to just go back to that little story and just be the clown of God and remember who I'm juggling for. Yeah. And why does God make us juggle? I mean, think about <laughs> yeah. it. Why does it, why does he make us juggle? You get to a point where the only thing you can do is juggle. And when you're not doing it well, then the only thing you can do is remember that it's God that's asking you to juggle because that's what he does. Whoa. A God who juggles galaxies needs me to learn mm. how to juggle the galaxies in my life. And the God who asks it is the God who will help me. That's what grace is, divine help, an endowment of strength. It is the assistance of God, his willingness to engage with us and to share with us his power mm. so that we can learn to be like him, to live as he lives. Wow. 
Up next. Even when it's hard, even when it is misunderstood and criticized, I can still keep going because my motives are pretty straightforward. Yeah. And when I say I'm doing this for God, that's something I've had to learn. Mm. And there are other things in my life that I have had to put on the sideline because this is a priority. And when people say to me, oh, you know, gosh, come work with me. You could make lots of money. You have a salesman personality, mm. so you could come and sell whatever we're selling. And, nah. and I think they don't catch my motivation. They don't catch my motivation. For me, my temple covenants, motivate me in every aspect of my life. And I think that's why I've been able to keep going, even when it's hard, even when it is misunderstood and criticized, I can still keep going because I do have that very clear. And consecration, to me, is not something we will live down the road. No way. Consecration is a law I live right now. I consecrate my time. I consecrate my talents. I consecrate my means. And I do it right now. It takes many different forms. Sometimes it takes the form of work. Sometimes it takes the form of speaking at a youth conference. Sometimes it takes the form of my calling. Sometimes it takes the form of spending time with my grandkids and reading them a book. But it is consecration. The difference between sacrifice mm. and consecration to me is the difference between Abraham and Isaac. Mm. Abraham was oh. sacrificing something, his son. Isaac was consecrating. And I think Hmm. When we put ourselves in the role of Abraham, we're sacrificing. But when we put ourselves in the role of Isaac, wow! when we are willing to give it all, because Isaac was not some helpless child. Hmm. Scholars say he was probably much older. Hmm. He wasn't a little kid. Wow. He was either a teenager or in his he knew 20s. what was going on. He knew what was going on. Mm. And yet he was willing. Abraham was willing to lay his son on the altar. Isaac was willing to lay himself on the altar. And when we can catch that motivation, then we can keep going and we can expect the help that comes as we make covenants. You know, when I was really young, Stephen, 
I told you how much I loved President Kimball. He was the prophet of my youth. He was the prophet of my mission. And I loved him. <laughs> Just loved him. And when I got back from my mission and I was going with some mission companions, former mission companions, to go to the temple, and we were doing an early morning session up there, I remember thinking, when it came to the law of consecration, I thought, well, what do I have to conse consecrate? Hmm. I mean, my time, I don't have any more time than anybody else. Hmm. What do I have to consecrate? Oh, my talents? Oh, yeah, like I'm talented. I have <laughs> absolutely no talents. <laughs> and then I thought, well, I could ta consecrate my means. And then I thought, I'm studying elementary education. <laughs> I'm going to graduate with a degree in elementary education. What <laughs> means do I have to offer? Mm. And I'll never forget that day in the temple where the Spirit told me something that I knew wasn't coming from my brain. Yeah. And I felt, Brad, you have something to consecrate that President Kimball doesn't even have mm. to consecrate. You have your youth. And I thought, yeah, I can give my youth. Instead of sitting around saying, oh, maybe later I'll have a calling. Maybe later I'll do my ministering. Maybe later when I'm not so busy, then I will serve in the church. Then I'll care about others. Man, that day hmm. I thought, I do have something to give. I will give my youth. And I have. Mm. I started doing EFYs in 1985. Wow. Are you serious? That's when it's that's how long it's been. The program started in 76. Wow. But I got involved with it in 85. And I still am involved with it. I'm sure that that's why God called me to this calling with the young men, because now EFY has turned into FSY. Which is amazing. Which is just remarkable. I mean, last summer, we had 122,000 teenagers experience FSY just in North America alone. Are you serious? Worldwide. This year, it will be closer to 250, 300,000 youth. Wow. And I know that God needed me to consecrate my youth mm. so that I would have the experience mm. to be able to now consecrate my advancing years. <laughs> I would have the experience to consecrate my experiences, mm -hmm. what I've learned, to be in a position where that can matter and wow. that can help the kingdom move forward. And, and what impacts have you seen? Because I've, I've, I've experienced it as as a as a I've, I've taught at, at FSY. Any, I'm telling you, Hi, Stephen, it you is and I so both. powerful. It's an incredible it's experience. A, and what have you seen? Like, what are some of the? What's some of the? Are you able to share some of the impact oh, that you've yeah. seen? My gosh, we're seeing it right now. I mean, from 2019 to 2022, 
Now, because of COVID, FSY didn't kick, get kicked off in North America until uh, 2021, a few sessions, yeah. then 2022 in a large-scale way, and then 2023. But just comparing 2022 to 2019, so skipping COVID, I mean, anything is up from COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But just from 2019 to 2022, we're seeing the youth rising up. Mm. We're seeing more patriarchal blessings. Oh, yeah. We're seeing more seminary attendance. We're seeing more temple recommends for youth. Really? We're seeing more on-time ordinations for young men. Wow. And we're seeing more applications for missions. I mean, Stephen... They're projecting that by the end of this year, they could have as many as 72,000 missionaries out. Are you serious? Now that goes back to the numbers we were seeing when President Monson lowered the age. But that lowered age brought a bubble mm. of missionaries. Now we're seeing those numbers being reached not by a bubble of missionaries, consistent. but by consistent youth who are willing to go against the current of the world, wow. who are willing to go against the tide. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing youth who can go to FSY and realize that they can have fun and yeah. they can be spiritual at the same time. They're of going course. to FSY and they're seeing fun teachers like you who can say the gospel is not just drudgery, the gospel is joy. And they see their counselors, these amazing young single adults who are role models to them, who are touchable heroes to them. Mm. And they look and they see their counselor and they say, wow, that lady can dance like a maniac. She is wild. <laughs> but she still reads her scriptures. Yeah. And they see this guy and they say, oh my gosh, he screams and yells at the games until his voice is gone and he eats more pizza than anybody I've ever seen. But he still says his prayers. And they start realizing, some of them for the first time, how gospel and life can go together. And I yes. love it because for, for many of the youth, it's the first time they've ever read scriptures five days in a row. First time they've ever prayed five days in a row. First time they've ever stood up and borne testimony without being assigned to. And they go home realizing that through these routines, through these practices, through this private religiosity, they can live in a covenant relationship in which they have access to Christ's power, to Christ's grace. They can realize that he can help them. We often speak of a covenant as a two-way promise, which it is, but we need to speak more often about a covenant as a relationship. Truman and Ann Madsen said, a covenant is not a cold contract. That's right. It's a warm relationship. 
And when we get away from contract thinking, then we get away from, oh my gosh, I can never do my part, so God will never do his part, and I might as well give up. And instead, we realize that within that covenant relationship, God and Christ are willing to help us learn how to do our part. That our part isn't necessarily your part and my part, but our part is what we are doing together with mm. God and with Christ. When we are baptized, hands are extended to give us the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's right. When we covenant in the temple, hands are extended. Mm. Symbols of Christ's grace, symbols of his assistance, symbols of his willingness to work with us. Emmanuel, my favorite title of Jesus Christ. And what does it say in the scriptures? It means God with us. And those hands are extended. And as long as our hand is in his hand, we can make it through. Stephen, if the knuckles of my hand represent the highs and the lows of my life. He offers to hold my hand during the high times and during the low times. Wow. And we realize how real the words are that the youth have as a theme this year. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. When I was serving in a stake presidency, I did a temple, a temple Recommend interview with a lady, and we got through all the questions, and she gave all the right answers, and then we got to the last one. Do you consider yourself worthy to enter the temple? And she said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so shocked because, Stephen, that's not the right answer. <laughs> and I said, sister, but look, you just answered all these questions. She says, I don't care how many questions I've answered. Me, worthy to go to the temple. She says, I could never be worthy on my own. But she says, don't worry, President. I'm not alone. I'm standing with Jesus. And together, we're worthy. That's the lesson. And I've never forgotten it, yeah. not only because it was an unconventional interview. I mean, it was definitely an <laughs> unconventional interview, but I'll, I'll never forget that. I'm not standing alone. I'm standing with Jesus. And with Jesus, we're worthy. Alone, I'm not worthy, but Jesus is worthy. And as if I'm with him, then we are worthy. I'm weak, he is strong, but when I'm with him, we are strong. When we go through the veil into the celestial room, the prophet himself can't part that veil and walk through alone. All of us have to grasp the extended hand of God and Together, we go through that veil into the celestial room. That is so profound. 
I think that we we try to compartmentalize Jesus sometimes in meaning that, and, and I think that's what makes us feel so bad about ourselves. It's like, well, I'm not humble. I'm not patient. I'm not these, these, da, 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 whatever the attribute is, but he has all of them. You know, it's like, I haven't been perfectly patient yet, but he is perfectly patient always. And he's and mentoring he, me. He's teaching he, yeah, me. Yeah. And we have the gift of the Holy Ghost. Like, like I, I've been thinking Which of Elder Christofferson calls the gift, the Holy Ghost is the messenger of grace. Tell me about that. The messenger of grace. Yeah. That's how Elder Christofferson describes the spirit. So you said we have the Holy Ghost. And with that Holy Ghost, then we have access to that grace mm. that then is able to help us. I never thought about it this way. That's what, like, we're always trying to be perfect, but it's like his grace is the fact that he, we can always have his spirit to be with us. Always. Like that in itself is so much grace. He knows all the truth about us. And still then he's willing in a merciful way. When, if we're willing, because we think that we have to earn it. We don't earn it. We qualify. We qualify for his grace. And if we do, we can always have his spirit with us. Because he's full of truth, yeah. he knows us. Yeah. He knows us how we are. But he also knows us how we were in mm. the pre-mortal life. Oh, wow. And he knows our potential mm. like no one else. Mm. Because he's full of grace, then he's willing to take us meet us where we are and help us reach our potential. You know, in the Book of Mormon, it says we rely on the merits, mercy, and grace mm. of our Savior. Well, his merits, of course, is the atonement. He was foreordained for the atonement. He lived a perfect life that qualified him to, to do the atonement. He, he uh, had a unique birth Mm. that made him uniquely qualified and capable of performing the atonement. So those are Christ's merits. And the fact that he was willing to do that for us means he loves us. Mm. Now, his mercy means that he has given us the opportunity to repent. Mm. He knows life was, was going to be full of falls. And in this mortal world, he knew that we would sin. But the atonement then allows us to be able to repent. So in his mercy, he gives us this chance to repent and be forgiven, to start once more. Yeah. That means he loves us the way we are. Mm. But his grace his willingness to not leave us the way we are. His grace means that he is willing to help us change. And that means he loves us enough to not leave us the way we are. In this area, where do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions of faith and repentance and even grace in general? President Nelson says, repent every day. And a lot of youth are thinking, oh my gosh, that means I have to call a bishop every day and yeah, confess. Yeah. Or that means I have to feel really sorrowful every day. No, if they'll just exchange the word repent for improve. 
then we turn to Christ, and in our covenant relationship, then with the Spirit with us always, then we can improve hmm. every day. And we know how. We know what to do. Is that what you're saying? The new Preach My Gospel, as you look at it, you'll realize there's a heavy, heavy emphasis on the doctrine of Christ. That's right. Now, the doctrine of Christ, of course, faith, repentance, yeah. baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost, enduring to the end. But you say, what, do, what are people missing? I think they're missing the change. Mm. Mm. That this is about transforming us. The doctrine of Christ isn't about us trying to earn mm. God's love or earn his favor or earn his approval. The doctrine of Christ is about us learning mm. to become more like Christ, to make these Christ-like attributes that you talked about mm. our own. So if he didn't require faith and repentance, there would be no desire to change. We wouldn't need it. Think about your friends mm. that have decided to live without faith and repentance. They don't desire to change. They want the church to change. Mm. They want God to change. Mm. They don't want to mm. change. They want everybody else to change and accept them mm. just the way they are. Wow. But God requires faith and repentance because that gives us a desire to be something better than we are. Mm. We have a God who is willing to help us become so much more than human. Wow. He's going to help us become divine. So he asks for our faith. He asks for repentance. He asks for covenants and gives the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because without that covenant relationship, without the gift of the Holy Ghost, we have no way to change. Wow. I mean, everybody <laughs> talks about willpower. In fact, my mom used to always say, where there's a will, Cox, there's a way. <laughs> I mean, it's cute. It's cute. You got to give it to her. It's cute. But it's wrong because all the Wilcoxes in the world aren't going to cut gonna it. It's going to be enough. It's not, it's not a, you can't pay it. Exactly. You can't. And all the willpower in the world is not enough. And mm. I find that out every second of January of every year. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because yeah. I set yeah, my little goals. New Year's resolution yeah. and then I, I start slipping again. So we need to stop trying to depend on willpower and mm. in dependence instead on his power, which we have access to because of covenants, because of the gift of the Holy Ghost. And if he did not require enduring to the end, then there would be no internalization of the change. Mm. Time. Time. Mm. Time. People say, time reveals true colors. Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Time will reveal true colors. But I see. time with the Spirit hmm. changes true colors. And the changes can be internalized. 
can become part of our character. Have you ever seen one of those makeover shows? Yeah. And they'll drag some lady out of the audience and they'll say, <laughs> yeah. oh, we're going to do this makeover. And they take her, and if her hair is long, they cut it. If her hair's short, they put extensions in. If yeah. they, if she's not wearing makeup, they put on makeup. If, if she, if she, you know, whatever, then they bring her out on stage and everybody's like, oh, 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 <laughs> such a transformation. No, that's not the kind of change that God is interested in. Mm. He doesn't want cosmetic change. He doesn't want superficial change. He doesn't want temporary change. He wants it to be deep, become part of us. Mm. Because then we can have eternal life. Now, we're not talking about the duration of our lives. We're talking about eternal being another name for God. We're talking about his life. We can have his life, a life in which we can live with loved ones eternally. We can live with God eternally, and we can live like God eternally. Mm. We can create as he creates. We can feel the joy he feels, and we can love as he loves. People say, have you been saved by grace? I say, yes, absolutely. And then I say, maybe it isn't grace or a belief in grace that separates us from other Christians. That's common ground. What separates us is salvation. Have you been saved by grace? That's the word mm. we ought to talk about. Tell me what you mean. Because salvation yeah, yeah, yeah. to many Christians just means getting to heaven, That's getting right. to the big rest home in the sky. <laughs> Let's just get through the wall. I write, I just got to get from this side of the wall to that side of the wall. I met a lady in the a south. location. Yeah. And this lady in the south just said, I'm going <laughs> to slip St. Peter at 20 and slide on through. <laughs> and, and, you know, that was her idea of salvation. But you say... It's not just a location. It's, you say it's a state of being. That's right. And so salvation for us is not just getting to heaven, not just getting back to God. It's becoming like him. And that is a salvation that will take all the grace that God in Christ can offer. But the blessing is that they offer it so freely, so willingly. They proffer it. Mm. I stand all amazed yeah. at the love Jesus offers me, confused at the grace that so fully he proffers me. Wow. When Charles Gabriel wrote that hymn, the word confused didn't just mean, I don't get it. It like, meant really? standing in awe. Why would he yeah, be willing? Standing in awe. He really is willing to do this? Of the grace, yeah. that divine help, this enabling power that so freely he proffers me. If I offer you a gift, I don't have a pen or anything, but if I offer you a gift, then I offer it and yeah. you have to come get it. Yeah, yeah. But if I proffer it to you, I'm going to put it right in your hand. 
I'm going to just put it right here. I'm going to make it almost impossible for you to refuse it. Now think of the emblems of the sacrament. In some churches, they're offered to the congregation. You have to come forward to receive them. Bring it to them. But in our church, it's proffered. (laughs) It is brought to us. Even when we're late. Mm. And in the foyer, and don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> Even when we're late, it's proffered to oh, us. Oh my goodness. But a gift can be refused. It's brought right to you. Yeah. We have to make the choice to pick up those emblems and internalize them. That's what happens as we endure to the end. This internalization of these godlike and christ-like characteristics i've seen it in other people you have too stephen yes right. i've seen people who have made changes and they have changed i mean i mm. see the difference the gospel has made in their life i see the difference that god has made in their life and i see it in myself too i see those changes being internalized so that's why the doctrine of christ is so important. That's why it's so emphasized in the new Preach My Gospel. That's why missionaries are teaching people to not just come unto Christ, but to come unto Christ by faith, repentance, by covenant, by receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, by enduring to the end, because that's when Christ can come unto us. That relationship with God doesn't have to go through anybody. We can have that relationship with God individually, directly. And we can have that relationship with Christ individually and directly. And that's the beauty of it that connection with God, that's, that means everything in our lives. You know, we live in a world where we're seeing a lot of mental and emotional issues, a lot of anxiety, a lot of problems that are going up. And we see a lot of religiosity going down. Yeah. And people can see the correlation. But it's only recently that we're seeing studies, actual research studies coming out of schools like Harvard and Stanford that are actually saying there's a causation that as we pull away from God, then we're seeing this increase in loneliness and despair. And so the answer is exactly what you said. Go to God, go to him yourself. When people, leave the church, the research that the church does on people who've left and people who come back, 
Their slippery slide out of the church starts when they stop praying. Mm. And their journey back into full mm. fellowship starts when they start praying again. It really boils down to that connection with God. Wow. Pray always. Yeah. Yeah, say the adversary didn't want you to pray. That's so interesting. Wow. Thank you. This has been a blessing. This has been a pleasure. Um, again, find out for yourself. Until next time. Now wait, before you end, we gotta move oh, yeah. these microphones. Oh, yeah. I gotta give you a big old hug. We gotta right do it. In front Let's of the do it. camera. Let's do it. <laughs> All right.